Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now enjoy the taste and smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Ariel Roldan, pastor of the Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches in the Michigan Conference. And now, here's Pastor Ariel. This series of sermons started about five years ago while I was still pastoring at the Oak Road Church. And they've been a great source of instructions, encouragement for me. Pray they are for you as well. I want to continue developing this idea of what it means to be in a covenant. Uh, last sermon, we talked about or try to help us understand better how we may be thinking of a marriage versus how God wants us to think about a marriage. And we talked about how marriages sometimes are often seen as a contract. And contracts are not the same as a covenant. A covenant is something that extends beyond focusing on me getting what I want. When I enter into a contract with a dentist, I want him to take care of my teeth. And if he takes a wrong tooth out, I'll get a new dentist. It's a contract. There's no commitment. If I want a plumber to fix my plumbing in my house, and my house gets flooded, I'll get a lawyer. <laughs> because it's a contract-based relationship. But when marriages are approached with that same mindset of a contract, we are setting ourselves up for failure because it's a guarantee that whatever you expect that he, from that human being is a matter of time before that human being somehow fails at something. Sandy asked a very important question during the children's story, one that didn't really show whether we get angry or not, but whether we are honest. He said, raise your hand if you've ever lost your temper. Were you tempted to not raise your hand? <laughs> what will people think? So if you are marrying someone, you are marrying someone that may lose their temper or will lose their temper. And so if you enter into this relationship expecting a contract to be fulfilled, you are, in essence, setting yourself up for disappointment. And eventually, because many people think of marriage as a contract, they feel that, well, you failed at meeting your end of the deal. Therefore, this contract is made void. Whereas a covenant is a completely different dynamic. And this morning, we're going to go into part two of the marriage covenant entitled Living the Marriage Covenant. If you would allow me to a word of prayer as we begin. Precious Father, this is a sacred subject and spiritual things are spiritually discerned. I am not able, Lord, to express fully and eloquently and clearly the beautiful truth you have for us this morning. So I'm asking for your spirit, Father, to condescend to our great need. Father, even if we're single, we are still experiencing covenant relationships with our parents. And all of us, Father, are invited to have a covenant relationship with you. So whether we are married, widowed, divorced, single, whatever our condition is this morning, us understanding what a covenant is, Father, is crucial 
for our happiness and for our fulfillment. So teach us, Father. Don't just teach our minds. Teach our hearts as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I mentioned earlier, we have a struggle in our society more than ever because we have media through all its forms via the newspapers, education, university. Brother Keith and I had a wonderful conversation this morning as we were driving to church. And faith, how our culture seems to put, you know, either you're a faith person or you're a science person, but you can't be both. And so if you love science like I do, you love medicine like I do, but I love Jesus and I have faith in his power to heal, somehow the two cannot live together. But that's a false notion. And in academia, if you express faith, then you're ridiculed as gullible or childlike. There are four forces that are very much present today, especially in our culture in the Western part of the world. Secularism is a loss of the sense of what is sacred in life. Humanism, marriage does not have its origin with God, but with a human-devised social structure. Selfism, this is where the contract mindset comes from. This worldview emphasizes our right to pursue self-fulfillment, self-sufficiency, and self-development. What is at the center of this worldview? Self. Do you want to marry someone that is selfish? No. But yet society keeps telling you, you got to watch out for number one. If you're not watching out for number one, who is? And if this relationship is not fulfilling your needs, then you got to leave it. You got to walk away. And there are situations, but they're usually the extreme situations where you have humongously dysfunctional behaviors that, yes, you should be protecting yourself or putting yourself in safety. But for the majority of us, the idea of my needs and my wants and what I expected, the, the focus on self frustrates our desire for companionship, for lasting, loving relationships. And the last one, relativism. This social lens makes moral issues subjective and therefore personal, not universal. I used to think like that. I used to tell people, well, your path is Buddhism, your path is Islam, your path is atheism. Good for you. And I can respect and I can see, well, when you go that route, then who has the final say as to what is right and wrong? Ultimately, all of these actually just put the human mind above the mind of God. What we have to come to terms is this. How many of you guys have children? How many of you have struggled telling your child they are sleepy, therefore they're having a tantrum, right? Now, the challenge is that your child thinks they know more than you. And the challenge is that you as a parent know them. They don't really know you. It is not until they're adults that they begin to reflect back and say things like, you know what, dad was right after all. If you're blessed with good parents, I mean, not perfect parents because we're not perfect either, right? But if you have good parents that love you and care for you, their advice will one day make sense to you. And that is the challenge that we have today when it comes to marriage and relationships. We as humans have a very narrow, limited view of reality. And the Word of God opens to us a mind bigger than ours. And we chafe. We resist the idea that someone knows better than me and is telling me something contrary to what I want. We are careful with what we tell our girls not to do. Because sometimes 
they were not even thinking about not doing it until you told them. But now that you've told them not to do something, they're struggling with doing it. <laughs> we have been very careful not tell them too many details as to why we put these plastic lids on the plugs in our house. Because we don't know how curious they might be. The Word of God is one of the most tender revelations of a heart that, of a God that loves you. And you need to know this before we even engage with anything that we're going to talk about this morning. You need to hear this preamble. If there's anyone in this universe that wants to see you happy and fulfilled, it is God, your Heavenly Father. And this morning, you may be challenged, just like my four-year-old is challenged when she is on the floor. I can tell she's exhausted. She's played outside with her sister. They've made snowmen. They've sled. They've done all these things. And I know that she's tired. She needs to lay down for a good 45 minutes to an hour. I definitely do need to do that. You know, I'm hoping she'll agree with me. Daddy's spent. I need a nap too. I just hope she listens. I just hope that my love for her will convince her I want the best for you, honey. And I am confident the Holy Spirit this morning will be speaking to each of our hearts with that message. I want the best for you, honey. I want the best for you, my child. Would you please trust me? Would you please trust me? We have these four forces, and yet the Bible presents to us four counterforces, which we can arm ourselves to protect our relationships. Because marriage is the core of society. From marriages come children, and from children is families. Families is what composed every part of society across the globe. The family unit is the life unit of our planet. And if there's one place where the enemy seeks to attack and destroy the most, is your idea of what a marriage is supposed to be. Because if he can frustrate you and discourage you and cause you to have failures in your relationships, he's successful. Because as in proportion with God wanting you happy, the adversary, the enemy of your soul wants you miserable. And we'll be studying, just after the sermon, we'll be studying, and I hope you'll stick around for the Bible study part that we'll have this morning for church. How he does this. The adversary of your soul doesn't, um, Bruce, you want to be miserable today? Um, Lloyd, how about a little dysfunction in your family. Are you interested in that today? Can I bring some of that? Of course, he never says that. He presents to us, listen carefully, listen carefully. He will peddle to you something he calls freedom, but is actually slavery. He peddles to you something that is pleasure when in reality is heartache and loneliness. I'm going to say it again. The reason many people are not very interested in what God has to say about marriage and relationships is because they are being infected with the lie that God wants you miserable and Satan wants you happy. God wants to control you. Satan wants to set you free. And that lie is very stealthily, very craftily being peddled in the world. I believed it for many years. I hope that this morning we will hear the Word of God present to us this as the most attractive, most beautiful choice we make in regards to relationship a total commitment, exclusive commitment, continuing commitment, and growing commitment. Can we say those loud together? Are you guys ready? Count of three. One, two, three. 
total commitment, exclusive commitment, continuing commitment, and growing commitment. These are the things that will protect your relationships, whether you're single, whether you're widowed, divorced, married, what, thinking about getting married. These are the things God presents to us to make you happy, fulfilled, and peaceful. When we look at total commitment, this was written by a Christian lady named Elizabeth Achtemeyer. She says it this way about her marriage, total commitment. I will be with you no matter what happens to us and between us. If you should become blind tomorrow, I will be there. If you achieve no success and attain no status in our society, I will be there. When we argue and are angry, and we inevitably will, I will work to bring us together. What are you thinking about these words so far? Do they sound good or bad? Do they sound good or bad? When we seem totally at odds and neither of us is having needs fulfilled, I will persist in trying to understand and in trying to restore our relationship. When our marriage seems utterly sterile and going nowhere at all, I will believe that it can work and I will want it to work and I will do my part to make it work. And when all is wonderful and we are happy, I will rejoice over our life together and continue to strive to keep our relationship growing and strong. I love these words. How about you? I resonate with this. But like we said last week, as much as we are drawn by this kind of a commitment, drawn by this kind of a surrender, this can only be achieved by God's grace, God's power. Our love is like our promises. And last week, I asked you if you could finish this sentence for me. Our promises are like ropes of sand. It looks solid no matter how thick you make that rope of sand. It is weak. We want this. God wants this. And we're going to be learning that it is essential to have this kind of a commitment for our relationships to function. And this is the part where we begin to chafe at the Bible. The Bible uses the words on the left. Society has transitioned to the words on the right. Fornication has been labeled as premarital sex. And adultery has been relabeled as extramarital sex. And the difference is this. Listen carefully, please, before you... Shut off the channel. There's a clear distinction between these two terms. And it is not that it's wrong to say premarital sex or wrong to say extramarital sex. But fornication and adultery carries with it a context of morality. And before we start thinking of morality, of someone that's moral, someone that is prude, someone that is against pleasure and happiness and joy, that's what the world usually presents morality. But I'm going to give you the biblical definition of moral and immoral. And it's very simple. Something that is moral makes you happy and healthy and good. Something that is immoral hurts you. Something that is immoral will always hurt you. When I was 16, my parents finally agreed to let my brother and I get a summer job. Because my brother and I kept pressuring my dad to buy us very expensive name brand sneakers. We didn't want the no name brand sneakers because the public school that I went to, you could get beat up by wearing the wrong kind of sneakers. And we didn't want to get beat up. 
I wanted to be cool like the rest of the kids in the school. Different schools have different values. That was the value in my public school. So my dad was like, I'm not paying $80 for a pair of sneakers. I was like, great, let me have a job. I'll pay for it. So we went and got a job landscaping at a community college. And most of our peers, we would be out there, you know, they made us do all the things that the full-time employees didn't want to do. They sent us out weeding and mulching and all this fun stuff. And we were out there, several 16-year-olds, after an hour or so of, of working, pulled out cigarette packets. And they offered us cigarettes. My dad had smoked, and he had warned us about the horrible effects of smoking. But what my dad didn't tell me is about the wonderful sense of feeling like you belong, that you are accepted, which are strong too. So the friends opened up cigarettes, and we had another friend that also got hired that went to the same church I did. And he took the cigarette and started smoking it. To this day, he still smokes. It started when we were 16. And there is a pleasure when you smoke. A good friend of mine, Sam Rodriguez, he's the gentleman that hired me for my first job as an assistant manager. He would tell me, I try to quit, Ariel, but when I get stressed, when I get anxious, I need to get that fix. I just need, because it calms me down. There is a level of pleasure that sin brings. If you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see that there's a verse that actually says that there's a temporary pleasure to sin. But what sin doesn't tell you is that the pleasure is temporary. Psalms chapter 11, verse 16 tells us that the pleasure God wants to give you are everlasting. Fornication and adultery, I'm going to be straight up with you guys, has a lot of pleasure. I wish they would have told me that when I was young growing up in the Spanish church that I went to. They try to make it seem like that is the most horrible thing you could ever experience, and that's all. There's pleasure that is involved there. But what the world never tells you is that it's temporary. What they don't tell you is, after the pleasure has faded, what do you have left? The reason God calls it immoral is because it hurts you. That's it. It's not because God is ashamed of you or ashamed of us when we practice these things. The reason is God is so against it is because it hurts human beings, his creatures, his children. So this morning, we need to explore these things from the Bible. I never quite understood why God was... I grew up in a culture in a time where the church did not talk about physical intimacy and things like that in church at all. Never heard a sermon on the subject. So for me, it was like almost like God was anti-sex. But that's not the reality at all. God wants us to have that experience. He created it. <laughs> but he wants to protect it. The enemy wants to use something that is good to hurt us. Genesis 38, 15. I used to read this verse with my head scratching. Why bother saying this? If you've been reading the Bible with us, you know the context, and we don't have time to develop it too much. But Judah saw her, and that's a family member of his, his daughter-in-law. He thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Without going into the story, let's just look at the culture and the practice of prostitution. In this relationship, there is no love, no commitment, no covenant. It's a contract. It's a contract. And in this contract, what's covered? The face. With the face being covered, it shows something about the idea of adultery and fornication. It always segments and fragments the human. It teaches you, it conditions you to want a part of somebody, but not the complete person. 
only this from you. I, want, I just want your financial security. I just want your looks. I just want your fun. I just want a piece of you, a part of you, not the complete part of you. When this act takes place, I never realized that that veil was never taken off because Judah never recognized her. This is what the world presents as good. You're only good as a part of you, but not the complete. Yet the human heart yearns to be accepted completely, wrinkles and warts and all. And what the world presents is shiny and glitzy, but it's not really what satisfies. Because you're never really sure whether you are wanted completely. I used to hear sermons and seminars about dating and the warnings of dating. Because when you date someone, your hair looks like really good and you're dressed really nice and you're behaving really good. But that's not really who you are. And the best way to know whether to marry someone is not to date them, but become their friend, their genuine friend. Because in friendships, masks come down. Friends argue with each other. Friends tell each other the truth, but not when you're dating. When you're dating, you want to be accepted. And you begin to figure out, what is that person like? Well, I'm going to become that. What does this person want? Well, if this person goes to church, I'll start going to church. Or if this person doesn't want to go to church, then I'll stop. But you never really come to the realization that God wants you to experience a relationship in which you know that person has accepted you completely. The things that are good about you, but also the things that are not so good. This is the best of the relationships that the world wants us to experience. To be accepted only partially, but to never experience being accepted completely. You know what? I've worked at both ends of nursing pediatrics, and then geriatrics. And I've talked to men and women, but mostly men, that have helped me understand really what the human heart craves all along. We don't want to be lonely. That's what we truly crave at the end of the day. At the end of the day, we want to be able to be with someone that if I happen to wake up with bad breath, they're not going to run out of the house. If I happen to lose my job, they're not going to walk out on me. That they're not with me because of the things that they can get with me. They are with me because they're choosing to love me. And if I can find that, I have found the greatest treasure on planet Earth. We humans are terrified of being alone, of being rejected. And this kind of a relationship guarantees that you will experience what you fear most. And God doesn't want that for any of us. Definitely for you and I. So when God talks about adultery and fornication, which carries a moral meaning behind it, it's because moral means something that's good for you. Immoral means it's something that will hurt you. And idolatry is considered something that will hurt us, and God links it with this, these acts of you know, human intimacy. Exodus 34, 13 through 16 tells us, For you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant. In this verse, we have the act of worship, the act of this relationship of covenant, and the idea of these immoral relationships. 
God wants us to realize that it doesn't feel good when someone cheats on you. My first dating experience was a horrible dating experience. I wish I would have heard the seminars that I heard in my 20s when I was in my teens. It saved me a lot of heartache. First young lady that I thought, this is it, I'm ready to land the plane. Yeah, you know, I'm going to get married. As soon as I graduated high school, she was unfaithful to me. That kind of heartache at 17, really? Are there not better experiences that I could be having at the age of 17? Like going on a mission trip, helping the church, leading out in the youth, being a pathfinder leader. Those are amazing experiences that bring a lot of fulfillment. But sitting in my room sobbing, looking at a picture, holding a teddy bear, I thought she loved me. I can chuckle back, but back then, you know, that's why Billy Ray Cyrus got so famous, right? <laughs> we could resonate with that. Don't break my heart. Don't pretend that you don't know it, right? Like, I'm not angry. Don't break my achy, breaky heart. And I look back at the secular songs. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Tell me the lie that you love me. Tell me the lie that I'm the only one. And so we have a society engrossed with idols, incapable of offering to each other what we yearn most, commitment, a covenant. We have young individuals starving for love and stability, incapable of giving it to each other, yet pretending and squishing each other as much as possible to try to find some kind of fulfillment. And so we have as a society continually pursuing that which will never be attained by any other human being. Because as we said at the very beginning of the sermon, those statements by that lady, if you go blind, I will be with, there with you. If we get angry, I will work it out. That kind of a commitment cannot be attained, listen carefully, attained and sustained unless I am in a living, connected way abiding with God. It is only the grace of God working in your heart that can fulfill you with the kind of love society is starving for. And God wants us to understand that if you're this morning thinking, man, my marriage could use a little tune-up, stop thinking of your marriage as a car. You may be able to fix your car, but listen carefully, you cannot fix your marriage. Because what your marriage needs is supernatural. What your marriage needs is divine intervention in the sense of God's love, God's Holy Spirit, God's Word dwelling in you, and beginning to producing you that which your spouse most desires from you and you cannot give. Your wife, your husband doesn't need more money from you. They don't need more fun with you. What your spouse needs is the idea, the conviction that no matter what happens, you will stick by that person. You will not leave me. You will not leave me when I am at my worst. You will stay with me. Those are the desires of the human heart. And only one person or an individual connected with God can offer that to someone else. My training for marriage began long before I ever got married. What God wants us to understand, in the same way for me when my friend cheated on me, I began to understand the Holy Spirit would be like, well, Ariel, that's how my heart feels every time you turn your back on me. Every time you choose other idols, money, pleasures, friends, whatever, girlfriends, instead of me, that's how I feel towards you. I am longing for the day in which you choose to be committed to me. 
I was so blessed this morning driving here and hearing Brother Keith's testimony of how all the light bulbs went on in his mind that he was just committed for Jesus, praying, studying his word. He couldn't get enough. God longs for the day which we turn to him, just like God says, you shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart, how much of your mind, how much of your strength. Not because God is insecure, but because God knows that when I make that choice, I am safe. I am protected. There's a book called Adventist Home. I highly recommend it. If you're married, if you're thinking about getting married, I highly recommend you read that book. There's a statement that says that the human heart yearns for human love. But that love is not strong enough, pure enough, nor faithful enough. And finishes with this sentence. Only the love of Jesus. Only the love of Jesus in your heart can help you forgive your spouse when they do something that hurts you. Only the love of Jesus can prompt you to try to make things right even though your spouse may be at fault. Only the love of Jesus can help you to be committed that you will not look to the left or to the right, but to this person and say, I made a decision and this is a choice based on love, not feelings. The same concept in Jeremiah 3 verses 8 through 9, in which Israel is accused of being in an adulterous relationship with God because of idolatry. Idolatry is the breaking of a covenant with God. What intimacy is to the human-human covenant relationship, worship is to the human-to-God covenant relationship. And if I didn't say it clear enough, hopefully here you can see it better. You will be able to restore intimacy in your marriage when you first focus on restoring worship, you worshiping God. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it this way. I'm glad that you want to fix your marriage. I'm glad you want your relationship to be good. But that's secondary. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, But seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added. When you seek for me, when you seek to worship me, when you seek to enter into a dependent relationship with me on a daily basis, you will see me act in your marriage in ways you've never seen before or your relationship. It takes a while for us to get these things. In some ways, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have a lot more distrust of God than we do of humans. And God understands that. He gives us time. But if you're hearing his voice speaking to your heart this morning, I'm praying that you will respond and say, Lord, I want this. I want this relationship to succeed. I want my marriage to last. I want to be a blessing to my children. And if you're a single or widow or divorced, whatever your status may be, God is like, let's forget the things that are behind. Let's focus from here on forward. Amen. Involve me in your life. I can forgive all those things, but my child, what I don't want you is to repeat the same heartaches of your past. It hurts me when I see my children hurt. And it hurts God when he sees us hurting. The last thing God wants is for you to repeat the heartaches of your past. So he's inviting us to trust him with our heart, to trust him with our choices, to trust him with our relationships. When we look at the idea of continuing commitment, we have to accept the fact that we are beings that we're not steady. We change. And that's not a bad thing. This gentleman in his book by Timothy Keller, The Meaning of Marriage, says, When I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of a sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? 
How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. Midlife crisis man, graduated from college man, change of career man, I want to change my job man. My wife got married and six months later, I was like, I'm quitting nursing, I'm going to go into the ministry. That was a change, right off the bat. Time has gone, and the only person that really doesn't sometimes pick up on how we have changed is me, myself. But you are not the same person you were a year ago. You are not the same person you were five years ago. You are not the same person you were 10 years ago. There are individuals that right now are very gun-ho for the Lord, that in five years, because of decisions and choices, they'll be maybe out of the church. Who knows? Or away from God, at least. And there are individuals today that may have no interest in God whatsoever, that something happens in their lives and they turn around and they're like completely committed Christians, fully surrendered to the Lord. If there's one thing that is for sure is that you and I can change, which is a good thing or a bad thing. The difference is what kind of relationship I choose to have with God. Do I want a contract with God or a covenant with God? And if I want a covenant with God, God will begin to infuse my mind with an ability that I do not naturally possess, in which when I am in the middle of a crisis in my relationship, when I am, like Sandy, thank you for being so transparent with us, in regards to your challenges, that we all have our own you know, flavor, but you've owned it that you know anger was something that the enemy knew that he could provoke in you. But that is extremely healthy when you're able to own what your weaknesses are. When I am tempted to respond the way I learned in my family how to respond, you scream louder, you make more threats, you slam the door, you walk away, you stonewall. You know the multiple ways, the hurtful ways. The Holy Spirit will begin to infuse in you the idea that you've done this before, right? Yes, I have. Did it feel good? Oh, it feels so good to say it. But what happens after you said it? What happened after you take out the nails? What happens after you see the person in tears? What happens after the awkwardness? What happens after you see the scars that your words have caused? And the Holy Spirit will not just show you that this is the powerful miracle that you'll get to experience when you involve God in your life. You will not respond the way you normally respond. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to put on the brakes and completely do a complete turnaround. And instead of saying what you normally would have said, you will say things like, you know, I don't want to keep going this route. I know I've never done this. But right now I feel the need to, to pray. We need to pray. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to hurt you again. And I know that I can and I will. Unless we invite God right now. God guarantees that every time you involve him, he will make what would have been a failure a complete success. Something amazing, every parable that we see is a slice of the truth. Because it is a truth that scars remain. It is a truth that those things stay there. But it is also a truth that God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus introduces himself to the church there, to the synagogue, he says that he has been anointed by the Spirit to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the broken hearted. He can give you a brand new piece of that fence. 
He can empower you to forgive the person you're with. And he can empower you to never drive another nail into that person's heart. Isn't that powerful? I mean, I used to think, nah, it can't be. But if I connect that day, if I connect with the Lord for that day, that day I see God working in my heart every single time. And I also learned a lot about temper from my family in Argentina. There must be some Italian in there and some indigenous bloodlines that, you know, probably wielded the machete way too often. Those genes are floating inside of me. But God's grace is more powerful than any human gene. God's grace is way more powerful than any tendency that I may have strengthened over the years. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free to love, free to commit. We're going to do some reading. This is a secular writer. And the reason I include this article that was in the New York Times 11 years ago is for this reason. Everything that I've said to you, you may be saying, well, that's because you are a Christian. That's why you're saying things. You're trying to make the world look bad and Christianity look good. This is an article written by a secular New Yorker. And what we're about to read is her journey in two experiences. Her journey in being unfaithful to her first husband and her journey of having her second husband be unfaithful to her. What provoked it? And what her thoughts are about this experience afterwards. And what we will see is that everything the Bible has been teaching us is not extramarital sex or premarital sex. It's immoral because it hurts. And it will hurt every time. This is how her journey begins. Not long ago, the friend of a friend spent the night in a hotel room which is sometimes what you do when you find out your spouse has been having a year-long affair. His flight was sadly predictable. It's all many of us are capable to off after discovering such a betrayal. Though I am sure he now realizes that mere movement is not a fix for that kind of agony. I know this for two reasons. Number one, I have had an affair. Number two, I have been the victim of one. When you unfurl these two experiences in the sunlight for comparison, and measure their worth and pain, the former, having an affair, is only marginally better than the latter, having someone cheat on you. Both, frankly, are awful. I recently offered my cheated-upon view of things to my acquaintance who was returning every night for a week to that hotel because he could not bear to look at his wife. A couple of years ago, I offered the other side to a friend when she was considering having an affair. Start, I suggested to her, by picturing yourself in the therapist's office with your betrayed husband after you've been found out and you will be found out. You will hear yourself saying you cheated because your needs weren't being met, the spark was gone, you were bored in your marriage, your lover understands you better. We already read the four worldviews, and this one sounds like which one? Do you guys remember? Selfism, right? There it is. The spark was gone, you were bored in your marriage, your lover understands you better. One or another version of this, ex of this excuse will cross your lips like some dark, knee-jerk, hallmark card sentiment. I'm not saying these feelings aren't legitimate, just that they don't legitimize what you're doing. If you believe they did, your stomach wouldn't drop on your way out the door to your lovers. You wouldn't feel the need to shower before climbing into the marital bed after a liaison. You wouldn't feel like a train has struck you in the back when your son asked you why you forgot his lacrosse game the other day. 
When you miss a family function because of work, you get over it. When you miss a family function because you were in a hotel room with your lover, you feel breathless with misery. This is a secular human being quite honest and objective with pleasure. The pleasure of an adulterous relationship, the pleasure of fornication. There isn't any. What you're left with is breathless misery. The great intimacy, by the way, is a given. When you have an affair, you already know you have passionate intimacy. The urgency, newness, and illicit nature of the affair practically guarantee that. What you don't know, or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about, is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret because of it. It will be difficult, if not impossible, to be in any one place with contentment. This is no way for an adult to live. And God says, Amen. God, your Father in heaven, says, spot on, secular atheist. That's exactly what I say in my word. This is no way for an adult to live. When you are with your lover, you'll be working on your alibi and feeling loathsome. When you are with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you are at home, everything in your life will look just a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food in your refrigerator, your children, your dog. Because you've detached yourself from your normal point of reference and it now belongs to a reality you've abandoned. You will be pulled between two poles. One of obligation and responsibility. The other of pleasure and escape. And the stress of these opposing forces will threaten to split you in two. So, now take the other side. You discover your cheating spouse, as I once did, and what you experience is not far removed from post-traumatic stress. It is a form of shock. As your mind struggles to accommodate this wrenching reality, you won't be able to sleep or focus. Your fight-or-flight mechanism will go haywire. You will become consumed with where your spouse is at any moment, even if you see him in the pool with your children. You will lose your appetite. Stress will blow out your metabolism. You will torture yourself with the details known and imagined. You will fit together the mysteries of his daily patterns like a wicked puzzle. Every absence or unexplained late night or a new habit or sudden urge to join a gym, you will wonder why you were so stupid. But as the writer Paul Thoreau says in one of his travelogues, it is very easy to plant a bomb in a peaceful, trusting place. That is what the cheating spouse has done, then detonated it. Sooner or later, your illicit, once beloved object of affection will become tawdry, wearying. You will come to long for simple, honest pleasures. A night in the club? Partying? Drugs? What has become simple, honest pleasures for this secular atheist? Like making dinner with your sons or going to the movies without having to look over your shoulder. It's a sham. It's a sham. Own experience testifies to the accuracy of the scriptures. There's someone in heaven that doesn't want you to have this experience. God agrees with what this lady says. This is no way for any human being to live. Would you agree with that? On the other side, your spouse's affair will cease to torment you, and instead, the whole episode will leave you disgusted and bored and desirous to get out. You will just want to be with someone who does what he says he's going to do, goes where he says he's going to go, 
and can be found anytime you need him because he is not what? Hiding. What does this sound like? Total, exclusive, growing, continuing commitment. Does it not? Honey, I'm going to be here at Myers. You call, put yourself on FaceTime. Oh, yeah, you are at Myers. Ah, that's nice. Someone that's not hiding. This secular atheist person from New York over a decade ago, in writing her own experience, is validating the book she avows not to believe in. If she could only be given a chance to read the pages of scripture that God not only doesn't want us to experience, but after going something like this, God's grace can also heal her heart. Amen? God suffers when we suffer. In the end, your marriage may not need to be trashed, though mine was. By the time all was said and done, there was little left to save. Our marriage had become like a leaf eaten away by caterpillars, where the petiole and the midrib remained with some ghostly connective tracery in between, not enough to hold even a drop of rain. She finishes with this. This is the part that I wanted to get to. I look at my parents and at how much simpler their lives at the age of 75 are, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it is their marriage, their continued, exclusive, growing commitment is a monument to success. Isn't that amazing? She's looking at all the pleasures and all the excitement of her life that ended with misery. And yet she looks at her parents that probably when she was in these experiences, we're looking at her parents thinking, oh, you poor fellas, oh, you antiquated thinking individuals. But now looking at her parents, 50 plus years of marriage could call her parents' marriage a monument to success. Would you agree with that? A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. If you imagine yourself in such a situation, where would you fit an affair in neatly? If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah cratered with spent artillery. Which would you rather have? Where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel room whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one. And despite the intimacy and the excitement or the drama and the fix of everyone's emphatic attention, there is no view from this room that is worth having. And God doesn't want you to have it. God wants the best for his children. And whether you acknowledge him as your father or not, he still thinks of you as his child. And if there is someone rooting for you, it's God in heaven, your heavenly Father. And if there's someone that wants to direct you away from these experiences, it's the God in the Bible. Luke 6, 47 through 48, Tim read it from us. Same translation, New King James says, Whoever comes to me and does what with the sayings of Jesus? Hears them and does them. I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man or a woman. Building a house, building a family, who dug deep and laid the foundation where? On the rock. And this house, because it was built on the rock, no floods ever hit it, 
No storms ever beat on it, right? Is building your life on Christ a guarantee that you will not have crises or problems? No, the guarantee is that when they come and everybody gets them, including secular people, the difference is that when the flood arose and the streams beat vehemently against that house, that house could not be shaken it because it was founded upon, how many want an unshakable relationship, an unshakable home? How many of you guys want to be unshakable parents? I remember sitting in front of a couple. The husband was adamantly convinced he married the wrong person. He had found his perfect person at a job. And I asked this individual, they have precious children. Who do you want raising your kids when you have an opportunity to do it yourself? There is a joy. There is safety. And the beauty about the Lord is there is a woman in John chapter 4. If you're not familiar with that story, please read it after church today. John chapter 4. The beauty about God and the gospel is this. No matter where I may find myself this morning, God can pick up my life from today and make it beautiful and precious. In John chapter 4, there's a woman that has failed five times in marriages. In fact, she's cohabiting with the person that she's living with. Yet Jesus loves her and reveals to her in ways that he never revealed himself to anyone else. Which reveals that God doesn't judge you by past decisions. You are still infinitely valuable to him, whether you're a drug addict, whether you're a prostitute, whether you're a tax collector. Whether you're a pastor, God doesn't say, oh, this, this, this. God looks at every human being as having everlasting value to him. You are valuable to God. He does not look at your past. He looks at who you are right now and what you need from him. And he wants to lavish you with that. And the offer that he made to that woman is the offer he makes to us today. I have water to give to you that if you drink it, when will you be thirsty again? Never. The longing you're trying to satisfy through your husband will leave you thirsty every time. And the quenching you're trying to experience from your wife will leave you thirsty every time. And every other relationship will do the same. But if you come to me, my sayings, you hearing them and doing them, my sayings will give you a stability, will give you a sense of commitment and covenant that no matter what storms come your way, I will sustain your home. I am that rock. It's not that you become the rock. I am the rock that sustains your marriage, your home. If a marriage is growing, which is growing commitment, it is growing through deaths and resurrections. 1 Corinthians 15, 31 says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, that I die. How often does Paul say he dies? Yeah. Daily. For some of us, you know, this idea of dying daily doesn't sound very nice. <laughs> and understandably so, because no one wants to die. But let me help you understand what the Bible means by that. It's not that the marriage dies. It's that you die so that your marriage can live. You die to your selfishness. I die to my self-centeredness. I die to my need to win the argument. Anyone need to struggle with that? You hate losing the argument? I need to die to my need to always be right, I need to die to my pride. We'll be studying that at length in just a few minutes when we open the book of Isaiah. I die daily means that every single day, it doesn't matter how good of a husband I was yesterday, I did the laundry, I cleaned the house, I did whatever. Today I can take off. 
No, this experience is daily coming in prayer and saying, Lord, I still have these tendencies. And I saw how you worked in my marriage yesterday, in my relationships yesterday. If you are a son or a daughter, you're still in a covenant relationship with your parents and you still need to die daily too. Father, I saw you work in my heart yesterday and I again come to you. Please work in my heart again that I may crucify those things that will hurt this relationship and put in me the things that will make it thrive and grow. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who lives in me now. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. While I was still in rebellion, he still did that for me. Couples that stop communicating deep get quickly. And couples that are bored with each other are very vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Couples that only talk about bills and mortgages and things they need to get fixed around the house and groceries are at risk. Couples that stop communicating deeply get bored with each other quickly. I'm going to give you an invitation to consider something that will deepen your communication. No better way to deepen your communication than to communicate your personal journey of faith. Start praying together. As simple as that may sound, three weeks ago we heard that very few couples actually pray, even Christian couples. So as your pastor this morning, if you were doing it and you kind of slacked off, I'm here to invite you to commit again to pray every day with your your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your fiancé, your parents if you're single, your siblings. Pray on a daily basis to share the things that you're praying about, the encouraging insights you receive from God through His Word, the new revelations into God's heart you've gleaned from personal study. So two things that married couples can do. You see, it's hard for us to trust each other, especially after a couple of years of them getting to know things about you and then throwing it in your face. I mean, no one knows how to hurt you better than the person you're with, right? They know what buttons to push, when to push them, how to push them. So it's hard to open up yourself when some of those experiences have happened, but this is a very safe place to do it. If you begin to read the Bible and you share with each other, what did you think about this? What did you think about that? It will begin to help you to focus on God. And the closer you come to God, the closer you'll come to each other. And start praying with each other. You know what? I've made calls for people to get baptized from the pulpit. And I just feel impressed to just make this appeal right now and ask you for a response. Not so much for me to see it, but for you to do it. Because it will reinforce your desire to do it even after the church service is over. So I'm going to ask this morning, how many of you are willing to commit to praying every day with your companion, with your partner? If the Holy Spirit has been prompting you, I'm encouraging you right now, commit to praying on a daily basis. Start there. Then eventually incorporate reading the scriptures together. That will transform you. It may sound too simple. You want to complicate it? (laughs) Why would we want that? God's Word is offering us what really our hearts are looking for. That lady from New York, if she were to hear the sermon, she would say, wow, I didn't know the Bible spoke so clearly about my experience. And I wish I would have had this information before. Totally committed, exclusively committed, continually committed, and growing in our commitment. 
this is what building on the rock is, and this is what will keep your marriage, your family, from being shaken, from being broken by the floods and storms of life. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that your word has protected me. I wish I would have not been such a knucklehead and listened to you when I was younger, but I'm so thankful you don't give up on us. I'm so thankful you call us so many times along our lives. And I'm grateful, Father, that in my late 20s, I finally began to stop resisting you and started yielding. Father, if there's someone here this morning that has been resisting you, I'm praying for your spirit to soften their hearts, that what they have heard this morning will draw them close to you, Lord, that they can believe you love them, that they can believe you want to see them happy and fulfilled. You don't want to see us hurting. Father, I've shed tears already for the heartache my little girls have experienced. So I know, Father, our suffering touches your heart. Father, draw near to those of us that need to make changes and feel our helplessness. Help us, Father. We need that. And Father, you've seen the hands that have gone up. We've raised them to you, not to any other human being. Help us to fulfill that desire to pray on a daily basis. And Father, help us to believe that you are powerful enough to strengthen and protect each of our relationships. We want that. We want you in our homes. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen, Father. Amen. You have been listening to Ariel Roldan, pastor of Cadillac and Lake City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Cadillac Church at 801 East Division Street in Cadillac, Michigan, and their church service begins at 11 a.m. Or visit the Lake City Church located at 5970 West Sanborn Road in Lake City, Michigan, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.